Tim Friends, and welcome to the Metacos brought to you by Navic. My name is Nico. Today I'm joined by my friends Philip Collins and Anton Bakman. And in this episode, we plan on having a discussion between you know the people that don't build, the investors, um, what we're looking for in Web3 games, and uh, we're gonna share our takes on where we think or what teams we think will win or what approaches we think will win. So it should be a very interesting um, discussion. Um, and I've been looking forward to this one. First, let's do like very, very short intros. So Philip, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Yeah, for sure. So I'm, I'm Philip Collins. I'm part of the investment team at Convoy Ventures, which is a gaming dedicated visa, VC fund based in Denver, Colorado. We actually particularly focus on platform infrastructure and tech in the gaming world, but have done a lot of a lot of work in Web3 and have, have had a little bit more of a content heavy focus, especially back in 2021. So excited to be talking to, to Nico and Anton about this. And for those of you who don't know, me and Phil, we talk weekly on air during our FogDAO the future of gaming weekly blockchain gaming roll-up that rolls of the tongue. We, we need to find a new name for that, man. Uh, anyway, I'm, sh- um, I'm shocked you're willing to, to have another conversation with me every week. Yeah. Yeah, it rolls up. It, it rolls up off the tongue. Oh, there we go. That is the perfect intro for our friend Anton, who has the driest humor of anyone I've ever met. But uh, Anton, <laughs> f- please feel free to tell us more about yourself than that. Yes. Aside, aside from my dry humor, I'm, I'm, a, so I'm, a, I'm a principal of Play Ventures. Uh, we're also an early stage uh, gaming fund with a global focus, investing in both content and tech uh, in the game industry. Uh, now, with a couple of funds up and running, including uh, including a crypto games fund called the Play Future Fund, which I run together with with one of our partners, Kendrick. Uh, and um, yeah, very excited to be here. And also, Good. I just gotta chime in as as you guys mentioned the the fog now that I have I have a pitch for you guys, an idea okay. for uh, for fog. It's um, and I, I'm I'm happy to be included in that one as well. So the idea is the Fog of War podcast, uh, and that is a podcast where where the guests don't hear each other, but the host hears everyone, and then <laughs> trying to have a an async discussion. So um, so if you need well, volunteers, then hit me up. It's that that's an experiment, um, and I feel like this is a terrible way of doing things specifically for the host because or, or yeah i don't know um maybe maybe you can join and you can host and i'll just be be in the audience just blindsided just listening to you um good um great intro also did you mention that you're also like a podcaster extraordinaire anton oh oh yeah that's uh, that's true so i also i also co-host the tokenomics podcast uh, a shameless plug here here now which is um which is the crypto segment of deconstructor fun uh, so, uh, a gaming podcast i'm sure many many listeners of this podcast also know so so tune in there uh to 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 hear more when when me and me and ethan levy uh deconstruct things that, that are happening in the crypto games world and, and also some some good pun or good puns man i feel they're good uh yeah, but, yeah. Um, that that's why all the guys I'll, make I'll, terrible you, puns i'll leave you to decide yeah good highly recommend good stuff there all right so while phil was talking i um I remembered something, and I'd love to have your take on this that I've been noticing in the space. So, as some of you might know, I'm like, so whenever a deal comes into Bitcraft and it's it's just a weird deal, they send it to me. You know, um, I'm I'm into to like non-traditional kinds of deals, and so I'm speaking to a lot of builders, a lot of game developers who are looking to do weird stuff on chain, right? To like, you know, so a lot of games 
most games actually they have the game logic exists you know on AWS servers and then the assets live on the blockchain and that is considered a Web three game and we can have a discussion about should that be called Web two point five game um, but I'm looking at teams and 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 games that have more of the logic happening on chain and so what I've been seeing and I'm actually kind of liking this but I would love to have your take on as well is um, a lot of these games so they don't really know what infra so they're actually looking to build tooling and infrastructure but they don't really know what will be needed and so what they do is they they just build a game first and then they see oh we need this to build this game and, and to to actually make this vision come true um and then you know that then i, I guess that's the way they're they're starting uh, thinking about this it, might that be phil why you've invested heavily into content as well or might that be a reason to start doing that more as well yeah it's interesting because i do think that in order to fix that chicken and the egg problem of the tooling that exists versus the games that can be built on it, we've started to see a lot of content teams go for the infrastructure angle as well. And I think a lot of the times we see other groups that are infrastructure focused trying to build the underlying tools that will eventually be available for licensing by game developers. And I think a lot of the times we view it as a little bit of a distraction for a lot of content teams because just knowing what's coming down the pipeline in terms of the tools that will be available to them over the next six, 12, 18 months. Um, I think there will be a, a broader availability of the tools that you need to build fully on-chain or partially on-chain games. And I think generally from our perspective, and, and granted we are a more infrastructure-focused fund, um, we like to see the content teams focus on the content, just knowing what is going to be available to them soon. To just drop in there, because um so I'll, I'll try to avoid naming names and naming chains here, but um, one of the teams we've invested in is also building, um, you know, really on the bleeding edge of, of, of on-chain uh, out there. And so they chose um, a layer two solution they wanted to build on, uh, but that layer two solution over-promised when the mainnet would go live. And so for that reason, like, so basically they were like, the game was kind of getting ready, but then the chain on which it should live was not ready. And so they had this counterparty risk or this thir third party risk that they had to manage. And so that's why I guess, you know, I would be, that, that would be a, like a counterpoint to what you just mentioned, right? Um, if you assume yeah. that the tooling will be there, but you don't have any control over it, um, you're putting yourself kind of at risk. For sure. And I, and I think it's also evolved too. Like we're, we're investors, we're early investors in Sky Mavis. And of course they've built Ronin and they've built Axie Infinity to date. Um, I think in the past it's made more sense where the velocity of infrastructure being developed was not happening at the same rate as it is today. And so businesses that have been building over the last three, four years, it does make sense that they've had to create their own tools. I just think that that mindset is shifting a little bit as the space continues to evolve and as more infrastructure continues to come to market. I think it'll become less of a necessity, whereas you know Sky Mavis viewed Ronin as, as more of a necessity for them to, to achieve their goals. Um, I think I think moving forward, there will be more third-party availability for those developers. So it's it's an evolution from necessity to you know ease of use from from third-party functionality. Mm -hmm. Just dropping in there, I think I think this is a very interesting discussion in terms of kind of the whole chicken and egg problem between content and infrastructure, uh, and um, maybe I I think. I think the common consensus I usually see is that, you know, you want to have the infrastructure companies building out the infrastructure, then the content will sort of come and the content will follow. But I don't necessarily agree, or at least 100% with that. I think there's a bit more nuance, nuance to it. 
Um, plus, it's also, I mean, it supports the narrative also of VC in general, because most VCs prefer to invest in infrastructure uh, than, than going directly into content investing. Now, obviously, we are all here in a lucky position that we're, we're industry focused and we can take a more of a portfolio approach to everything that's happening in the industry. But but if a generalist VC invests in, in gaming, it's usually in infrastructure because they have a hard time warranting two or three studio investments per, per fund vintage. But, but going back to that discussion on, on kind of how does content come first or infrastructure there, I think... Uh, and again, I'm not saying that history repeats itself, but it, but it often rhymes. Uh, I think it, I think it uh, applies to this as well, uh, where um, if we look at some of the bigger gaming infrastructure companies, many of them started also as or tech infrastructure. They usually start as studios uh, from the get-go and building infrastructure, solving for their own problems. Not necessarily they didn't become big game studios, but they became big tech companies. So obviously looking at Discord, which was a MOBA studio in the beginning, looking at Slack, who were trying to build an MMO, uh, looking at even Unity started out as a content developer, uh, and they, they eventually spun out Unity Studios to a separate entity, which didn't become obviously nearly as big as the uh, the game engine company. Uh, and, and and also, if we, if we look at Unreal Engine, it's mostly a result of of them building their own solutions for their own games. <clears throat> obviously, there's some there's a lot of merit, I think, to Philip's comment about what the cadence of new technology is right now, uh, given that small teams. They can plug in every SaaS product there is, and then they can spun up, spin up new tech with smaller teams all the time. And so you, you just generally have a much bigger abundance of, of tech. Uh, where I may be, maybe where my concerns lie there is that I'm not always sure if these um, game gaming technology developers really understand the needs uh, of the content developers, and it potentially also if you rely too much on on on, on that um, gaming infrastructure, which mainly tries to emulate status quo and what's now possible in the market and trying to do incremental improvements, uh, does that stifle the innovation also of the content developers? So even if we see more and more uh, APIs being plugged into, more and more SDKs also being used and, and obviously of the distribution platforms as well, I think we still see a number of, of custom tooling that is being built by these content teams. Uh, but let's say they don't need to go through all of that rudimentary tech anymore, but, but I think the all of this actually also amplifies their ability to focus on that specific tooling they need to really figure out new things. And when they figure out when when those that handful of studios that are out there in in each kind of cycle, if you will, figure out figure out new things to do with games, figure out completely new new types of games. That's also that's when I believe the infrastructure developers look at okay, what are these guys doing? And let's let's start now. Now there's been a tech leap. But then they kind of globalize or democratize that tech uh, in a way for all the other developers to use. Uh, but but there again, I think in gaming, I think the con in many in many instances the content developers also spearhead a lot of the new technology that is coming along. Yeah, and I think it is a it is a really interesting point. And I think maybe to extend what I was saying before, I think the degree of innovation that the infrastructure a content studio is trying to bring to the table really does matter. Where I think a lot of times my, my first point might've been referring to technology that's being a little bit more standardized and already being worked on a lot, like a wallet, for an example. Um, it's not necessarily changing the game. It's not changing the content they're able to create. And they're, they're kind of iterating on things that already exist and their time just maybe is better spent elsewhere. However, there are definitely a lot of really interesting gameplay changing infrastructures that can be built by a content studio and make something that was impossible possible. I think that to your point, Anton, is where it gets really interesting. And, you know, then it's not just a, a misuse of time. It's 
it's a requirement to build what you want to build. And I think that is a, a very powerful tool. And, and it's been interesting too, to see the flip of what we were talking about, where we've actually seen a lot of infrastructure providers building games now and building out like a games team to show off the capabilities. Because sometimes these, these infrastructure capabilities are so unique that no one's really ever seen it before. And so they're building out their own games teams to have the proof of concept and show off what they're actually able to do with it, um, which is in, an interesting flip of the content teams building infrastructure. Man, there's like four things I want to dive into. Um, one of the things that I wrote down was, um, it seems like there's old tooling or like a difference in old tooling, tooling versus new tooling. And with which I mean tooling to solve a problem that we know exists and then tooling that will be used to solve problems that we actually don't even know that exist or will exist. Because I had a conversation with uh, one of the, the growth uh, team members that are responsible for growth at Sky Mavis today. And he told me that um, one of the biggest, so he comes from the traditional um, hyper-casual publishing space. Uh, he worked at Voodoo. And so he, he one of the insights that he got is that within Web3, there is nothing like, um, like nothing built around UA that it, as exi as it exists within the web2 gaming space within specifically the mobile uh, gaming space and so you know this is something that they're working on quite hard um and it is something that has like you know gives them a like it, it's something that they're quite a lot ahead in or with because one they have the, the it's, it's 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 being built it's being built we have been also we've been also looking into okay. into this space I, and and, all, and also it i think it's just just a quick note there because i think this is super interesting uh up uh, like uh, subject and also when we look at um mobile free to play which is uh where arguably the the relationship between the player and the developer is very different uh, from web3 where every if, if in web3 we're building in public everything is super transparent we always see where everything is going but in mobile free to play um the the closest you get to to your users are on a spreadsheet uh, and sort of you, you see you see what their LTV is, what the CPI was, all of the attribution data, etc. You understand everything about those players from that perspective, and then are able, and then you're able to to to, to get players at scale when you when, when you nail that model correctly. Uh, but that's maybe to the merit of of Web two gaming and, and and free to play is that it is what the level of the, da the level of data sophistication that these companies are dealing with uh, at a high level and how well they understand their users, and this. This is more or less completely absent uh, still from the Web three space, which which maybe is a uh, is a, at, 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 in, in in the beginning maybe a bit counterintuitive given the amount of of also open data uh, that these companies can be dealing with. But now there's just a bunch of raw data out there. Uh, I don't know what the exact solution is going to be, but uh, but just starting from from kind of the the way of kind of building up building an ID or connecting one ID to multiple wallet accounts. Etc. And trying to get smarter about you know what the spending of these wallets are that are, for example, in the Polygon ecosystem, and then building targeting, uh, retargeting, uh, different kinds of uh, ways to attract players with, with airdrops, sending 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 NFTs directly based on based on previous wallet activity. I think these are kind of the this is the wet daydream of many many founders right now, many game developers, and and VCs included, and trying to sort of get to the uh, be the first ones to kind of figure that out at scale. 
Yeah, it's been it's been interesting to see where I think most teams that are going after the UA issue, I haven't heard a single one say that they're going to be able to fully rely on on-chain data. They always need the direct relationships with the studios or content producer to match up that data with the on-chain data to go one layer deeper and really provide the quality of insights that warrants a standalone business that helps you focus on airdropping to the highest value customers and knowing who these players are and what their capabilities and resources are. Um, so it has been interesting where it goes almost like maybe full circle eventually to the to the Web2 gaming world where you have to have the direct proprietary data insights from the, the studio, even though you might think on-chain data is this great open source of, of information. And it is, but on its own, I, I just really haven't seen anyone view that as sufficient. Um, so I, I, I do wonder if the strategies will, will mirror what we've seen historically and just have an added layer of, of open Web3 data, but haven't, haven't really seen it quite yet. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, and, and I think, I think most of, most of the key problems will actually solve, will be solved off chain on the, on the UI layer, mm-hmm. uh, on just, just how we interact with, let, let's say, let's say, um, let's take an example of, if I'm, 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 I'm a game developer, I develop Forex games, uh, and, um, I want to target wallets, uh, of other players that also play Forex games because they're likely my best lookalike audience uh, to, to, to go after. So I want to target them with, or I want to get to them with targeted airdrops of assets in my game. If they come into my game and claim it, then, then sort of they get that asset and, and that's the UA strategy. But right now, if I send if, if I send an NFT to someone which is unwarranted, it's going to, if it's open, see, it's going to go to the hidden tab uh, and um, how we're going to find that, how am I going to trust this this random game that sends me NFT. What if it's a phishing attempt? So, and and I think the best possible way of doing any messaging is that you you include you include a, a text message in the metadata that hey, come and claim this at this URL, uh, and then just trust us, you know, and come come play the game. So you're anyways going to be have to do trusting on the word of mouth uh, layer there layer uh, there as well. Um, but sort of imagine a wallet which kind of where you could read the wallet interface could read from the metadata that that sort of it 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 would show you in your wallet a banner ad of that game and some key information about that game how many players what this game is about and then there's a more more UX friendly way of actually accepting that NFT and then jumping directly into the game obviously given that it's running in the browser or or then directing you to the Epic Game Store or whichever storefront allows the distribution of your game but um but yeah still a lot to do uh, on that front, but luckily we're seeing we're seeing teams who are kind of thinking a couple of steps ahead from from only only focusing on the stuff that is now happening in the market and trying to optimize for you know does this wallet interface look good? But you know just skip it, allow people to play this play game for free, and then try to figure as much stuff in the background as possible. So it sounds like you know a lot of teams are trying to figure out this this UA problem, which I would consider already. An advanced problem when it comes to Web three because there are some, you know, more self evident issues that are still not solved, um, like you know, just like an on ramp, right? Just before the recording, Anton tried to mint and he didn't have any soul for him, and so he tried to use MoonPay, but his Finnish banks didn't like that, so he couldn't get any soul to his uh, to his wallet, um, and so you know, the on ramp is an issue, wallets is an issue, um, and so when but I was saved, the- but you also witnessed when I was saved by the community. You were saved by the game. It's beautiful. Web three, so wholesome, so positive. Some I love this. I got a, um, I got a, I got a, I got an emergency drop of soul in my phantom, and I was wow. able to. It's amazing. 
Yeah. I wish I had friends like that or a community like that. Um, fuck now, please <laughs> make it happen. <laughs> anyway, um, what, was, what I was going to ask is I wanted to have your thoughts on um, when, what's the time frame you consider some of these basic needs, basic toolings to be like solved problems where you don't have to ask a um, a game developer that's coming to you with their pitch deck about like, you know, how, how is your on-ramp going to, what, what's your on-ramp going to look like and what's your wallet solution and, and et cetera. Um, some of these basic principles, when do you expect um, those to be solved problems? I feel like we'll see the first iteration of solving those problems within the next kind of 12 months. And again, emphasis on first iteration. I think we'll continue to see people build on top of wallets and, and these other core infrastructure layers that are necessary for, for blockchain gaming. But I've definitely started to see more consensus around what's the best on-ramp out there right now? What wallet should I be using? And while we're still seeing a lot of innovation and in products that will be coming out over the next one or two years. I do feel like within the next year, we'll, we'll continue to see the release of, of V1 of that. Um, so still, I think a long way to go to get it to where it ultimately needs to be. But I think the consensus will start to form on the optimal tools to build a game on top of a sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. to, I, um, think, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be at the point when there's a decent game in the market. Uh, I think that's when the next gear will kick in with this infrastructure, because I, th I still think that most, most of these teams are building, as I mentioned, they're, they're kind of trying to solve problems that they don't even potentially know yet about. Uh, I think some of the er because some of the early criticism I got from some of our content developers when I was when I was asking for their opinion on, on on certain infrastructure that I was seeing in the market is that they felt that that yeah there are some nice to haves but these are still quite shallow uh, in, in in terms of and then then you were seeing a bunch of a bunch of similar solutions being uh, being built in the market but I think I think they're all suffering from the same same challenge that that I'm not sure. If they are, I'm not sure if they know that they aren't potentially building for the right challenges yet. Uh, and um, and there, I, th I think it's, it's it's the same answer I have for when when people ask, but what chain do I think is the best one for gaming? It's whichever going to be the one that has the first hit game uh -huh. uh, at scale, uh, because because then probably other developers also flock uh, to that chain. Probably not for the right reasons, uh, or or who, who, who knows? But but I think that's still. The most important catalyst for everything in this space is to have a game that uh, that sort of scales in a healthy manner, where you have players, in my opinion, that are paying for entertainment value. Obviously, you have all of this other stuff also in place uh, to kind of enable this this player-driven economy. But finding a game game which is appealing for for players who are willing to pay for entertainment value at scale—that's what I will be the most important catalyst also for for then taking another look. Okay, when are we going to see this? As as, as Philip mentioned sort of this way of infrastructure being ready. Uh, and then, then, then they'll again start looking at new, new challenges to, to build solutions for. Yeah, and th there will be a lot to sort out too. I think something that might go unnoticed in general is just how many people are going after the same problems right now and how many wallets there are being built, how many different layer ones honestly are being built. There's a lot of people going after the same problems. And so I think Anton's point is a good one that popularity will eventually start to start to really be important to adoption from from other developers and builders and who knows I, I, like i don't know if i buy into 
uh, the first really, really good blockchain game being out in a year. I think that'll potentially depend on Web 2 games pivoting into Web 3 versus native Web 3 games that are going to be ready. Because I do still feel like a lot of the top quality Web 3 games that I've seen come through our office they still have you know two to three years of development time left. Um, and so the first Web3 native game might not be ready in the, the first great Web3 game might not be ready in the next year, but you never know who's going to enter the mix and bring it, bring it forward. You invested in the wrong game studios, bro. Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting discussion. And it seems like the, the network effects are like way stronger than anything we've ever seen because of this concept of composability and interoperability where, you know, if one chain starts gaining traction, they have, um, they start gaining player liquidity. People start building these tools can be reused. So people like get drawn there. It, it almost, it, to me at least, it feels like ETH, the ETH ecosystem, the EVM ecosystem has kind of won already. Um, it like, you know, if a, very, very, very good game would come out on a blockchain like maybe Flow or Binance Smart Chain or whatever they're called now. Do you guys think that then you you would these chains would would have potential all of, all of a sudden? Yeah, I, I think I, I think they would attract a certain amount of developer activity. Uh, obviously, also depending on how what the revenue numbers look like. Uh, and um, I think specifically for maybe developers, which would be most most of the developers out there who who either don't care about crypto yet uh or or are, are a bit undecided on on on, on what they will build on because I, I think there is kind of a, what's this what's this bias called survivorship bias uh also in a way uh that yep. that they see that okay because uh, again if it's something like flow or something that's a bit more walled walled garden ish uh type of a solution uh, it's also easier to solve for ux uh in a big way uh, and um, and obviously, if there's a hit game, and then you generate a lot of wallets in the background uh, that might be hosted in the beginning. But when you teach the player, the players retain for a longer time. You might want to present the option to let you know take control of your own wallet, and that's how you potentially. I would view that as yet another conversion event where you see that that player, that user, is even more vested into your ecosystem. Uh, and it's it's a bit like it's almost a bit like having an Apple ID as well. Uh, and, and then you're kind of vested to the App Store ecosystem in a way. Uh, so, so if, let's say, and, and, and this now specifically also for majority of users that aren't, now not aren't yet onboarded to, web, to crypto and Web3. Uh, but, um, but I think it can, be, it, it, can, it can be a strong catalyst for that as well. And then they do own those users in a different way, even though uh, the purists might, might not consider that being a kind of a true, true crypto solution. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think the quality of content will eventually determine success for a lot of these infrastructure layers. And I think that's why groups have relied so heavily on business development so far and basically buying content. And I think it's been something that Polygon has done incredibly well. And one of the reasons for their lead is they've, they've invested in a ton of content creators. They, they have this massive stable of content that's bound to come out. And the more content you have, the more quality content you have, the higher likelihood of hitting that success. And so I feel like this BD effort from them has been to position themselves with the best content, with the highest likelihood of hitting, because eventually it's not going to just be about throwing investments all over the place and getting all these studios on. It's going to be having the beacon of content that attracts everyone there. 
It's like Fortnite to the Epic Game Store. Like that is the beacon of light that brought people in. And I think I think that will be key to the strategy. So I think today money is almost a proxy for game quality. And eventually that game quality will take over as the the UA case for for the infrastructure. So this brings us very naturally to the reason why we're here together, the three of us. So a little bit of context. We were, the three of us, interviewed by a friend of ours, or mine at least, Avi Hai, um, who wanted to write a piece about how VCs, gaming VCs, look at what's happening with the bear markets and what they're looking for. And so one of the quotes in the piece, which might be out once this goes out, so we'll, we'll see about that, was um, around you know, who will be this beacon of light that draws in the players and what's, what's the main innovation that they will, uh, they will bring to, to games um, or to, well, where will the main innovation within their game come from? And so the question is a bit, will this, do we expect this to be at the games level or will we expect this to be at the economics level? Um, and so Anton, I, uh, you had a thought there and I'd love to have your take and then we can, uh, we can discuss it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think this is a, I think we've been we've been discussing this a few times as well with Nico uh, previously or potentially, uh, and um, yeah, I'd say if if I have to choose between one of those uh, now again, I don't think it I don't think it's that black and white. And now I'll have to double check what I answered in that report, uh, but it was a very thoughtful answer. Answer anyhow, but um, I think I think it, it's definitely gameplay first in my world at least. Uh, but this, but this also this also depends on the audience. But I'll get to that. I'll, I'll get to that in a bit. Uh, but I think what initially draws someone to play a game uh, is that kind of core loop. That's a core mechanic that you find interesting, or it might be the idea of you know playing with friends or something. But the reason you come back the same day or the next day is because you find that core gameplay being enjoyable. Uh, and um, I'm not yet sure how how much of an impact. Uh, things being on chain can have to that specific type of core gameplay there is though a genre of games where that has an impact uh and um, i'll we'll hopefully also get into that a bit uh but um but um but having that sort of core core piece of of you know basic actions that you do in the game is, is what you find interesting it might be it might be a tab targeting based combat in a in, in an mmorpg it might be it might be an fps game it might be a top-down shooter it might be might be kind of the isometric hack and slash Pressing your mouse, your mouse button in, and running around slaying demons, whatever, <clears throat> or, or tapping, uh, setting up your bases, attacking someone in Clash of Clans. That's the fun part, and that's 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 kind of the reason. Those kind of tactile uh, experiences that that kind of light up all of the all the brain fluids and, and get you going. Uh, that um, those are the reasons that you come back for those games daily, because uh, I think that's kind of the spark. For why you find a game interesting, and and but why you stay to play that game for years? Now that's a different matter, and that's obviously where the meta game design comes in, and, and and sort of what are these kind of long term goals and and other 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 sort of key things that keep you in place? It's a social network you build in the game. Uh, it might be long term goals that the game is setting uh, to you, uh, and there I think the on chain design has a bigger part to play, uh, and especially as we sort of you know. We're gamers. Everyone in, uh, in 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 this call, I think, we understand what it means to to feel that sort of there's economic value to, or sort of at least there's entertainment value, emotional value. So we also find that I, th- I think the economic value is kind of a proxy, uh, or, or they are a proxy for for there being economic value also uh, within these assets. 
And uh, and that's something where I believe on-chain is, is better to emulate when we talk about larger masses of players who necessarily don't find real value in in, in, in game in game elements being being on chain. And just before my monologue gets a bit too long, uh, I also want to go back to my previous point of 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 where I where I think on chain game design does make sense. And um, I want to take us back a couple a month a month and a half. We were having coffee with Nico in Tribeca, the only good black coffee I had in New York during that week. Uh, but um, there I. I, I had had a dream about on-chain games. I told this to Nico uh, that I finally found out which audience or there is. I, I believe that actually the on-chain games like Dark Forest and, for example, what what Playmint is building, uh, which is which is a shared investment that uh, between Play and Bitcraft, with which Bitcraft led uh, led earlier, uh, and um, I think that's those are the games that are, are is the only one yet within crypto that have found product market fit because um or especially dark forest because we're looking at a game where people don't really make any gains but everything is everything is happening on chain uh you're simulating fog of war for example with with with, with privacy tech uh in crypto and and i think i think that it's sort of um those kinds of games are mostly played by developers and really big like industry enthusiasts who enjoy they truly get. I, I believe they truly get entertainment value of knowing that these things are happening on chain, and they're happy to play. They're happy to pay for it, and they're happy to do that without having to earn money uh, from doing it. And that's why that's why I find those super interesting. And I had had my doubts of of that specific subgenre of crypto games previously, but uh, maybe. And I don't know if this insight or, or this this thought holds surf holds water, but I, I, I believe it does to a certain extent. And I believe that's actually, we're looking there at the first audience within crypto games where we have found product market fit. Uh, I think crypto games is a spectrum on depending on how much on-chain elements you incorporate in your game development. But now that's a super interesting sub-segment at the moment and seeing where that could grow by by finding that core audience and seeing how how far that core audience could extend. Mm-hmm. There was a bit of a monologue, but um, but if if I missed any of any of the points, and uh, if you think I had any other good pointers in that report, Nico, then please uh, please uh, point them out. No, I mean I think I I totally agree on the on the gameplay versus tokenomic side. Gameplay definitely comes out on top there, and I think the fundamental bar that I use for that is that gameplay can exist without tokenomics, and tokenomics I don't believe can exist without gameplay. Um, I think the last. 20, 30 years have shown us that gameplay on its own can stand alone. Um, if you asked people this a year ago, I think there would have been a more controversial conversation around tokenomics versus gameplay, where a year ago we were still exploring the origins of blockchain gaming and play to earn and what it meant to have financial financial rewards coming from playing a video game. And so I think there was there was more conversation around how a successful tokenomics model, and we saw this with, with the Axie example, could really drive an audience forward and be the core attraction. I also just think that over-optimizing for tokenomics in a game will inevitably be a, a negative for, for studios where, as of today, you're just attracting the wrong audience. And I think that's the audience that will bounce around to whatever tokenomics model serves them best, not even is the best model. Um, but gameplay aside, it, you're, you're there for the earning mechanism. And so I think over-optimizing towards gameplay enables you to have a, a, a more lengthened 
uh, a lengthened experience for players and really act as what we've historically seen from, from traditional games, which is a source of entertainment, a source of an enjoyment, and the ability to create an IP that, that survives the test of time and brings, uh, brings in cash flow for, for years or decades. Um, so I, I think it's this, this fundamental gameplay can survive without tokenomics, but I don't think tokenomics can drive a game forward meaningfully if it doesn't have a, an engaging core loop that brings players back for the right reasons. So if I would try to summarize what I, I hear you guys say, it would be that a successful game will have a fun, non-crypto related core gameplay loop. And there's a sort of meta economic layer around that, which just deepens the game and makes it um, more fun to replay over the long term. Would that be fair? I think from a tokenomics perspective, yes, but I do think there is an angle as well. And we've talked about this in the Fogdod Discord about how NFTs, so like set the, the traditional view of like tokenomics aside, how you can leverage blockchain and NFTs to impact your core gameplay loop. Um, kind of like that choose your own adventure example where the way that you play the game might shape the way that the future core loop interacts with you. And so there's a lot of cool things you can do there. But I think purely from a, a tokenomics perspective, I, I would agree with what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, I, th I think, again, there's um, it's not black and white in a sense that it's it's one piece of this and it's one piece of that, but it's a, it's a, it's a result of constant iteration. Uh, it might be that, you know, something on-chain will, will affect the core loop. Now, I don't know what that's going to be, uh, but I think you just have to ask, you know, who is my audience? Who am I building this for? Uh, and um, do they care? Do they find this fun? Uh, and the, and then the the end result is is a mix of is a mix, is a mix of something like that. And here again, maybe a thought that uh, I sometimes get criticized for, but I I do think that uh, there is a lot to learn from free to play uh, when also building uh, bu building these games because these we are also that games here. that ran there. <laughs> these are <laughs> these are games that have been also, or especially if we look at games that have had deep economies before. Uh, but instead of, you know, the developer being the central bank, now it's an open market uh, more in a way. So bringing more challenges, but potentially also much, much deeper retention hooks also in a way, because I think players ultimately feel more vested in these games and in these economies when you free it up, uh, up to other players. But I think some of the basic rules still stand. There is a loop. There is a behavioral loop when you log into the game and, and, and what, what you want to do there. Uh, and... Uh, that gets you interested because, again, the attention we're living in the attention economy. Uh, get pop-ups left and right. What we should do, what we should try, uh, and um, I mean, heck, like e-commerce sites are competing for the same screen time as, as any mobile game or any any PC game or Netflix for that matter. Uh, so it has to it has to be engaging what you do when you come in, and relatively effortless. Or I mean, not effortless, but effortless enough. You gotta find the. You have to find the flow state of something being fun in that game, but you know that thing is only going to be fun, what couple of days, and there needs to be kind of long term stuff. The meta game, which also exists in a lot of the kind of very economy driven free to play games, uh, and the social aspect, but these are all kind of. These are all building on top of that super fun experience that you have when you when you play the game and, and sort of come into the game for, for the first couple of times. And that's what made, and then the other part is what makes you stay for those uh, for many years. Not to say that, you know, game free to play is, I'm not saying that they are vis-a-vis -vis with, uh, with, with crypto games. Obviously it's going to be, we've already seen that with teams, 
that come from free to play and kind of are struggling to to kind of reinvent not reinvent the wheel but sort of think outside of the uh, the kind of boundaries of free to play and just just kind of trying trying forgetting those old rules and really thinking about something new. But but there is a lot to I think there's there's always a lot to learn from previous paradigms, and then I think that's that's maybe my main point with with, with thinking that, or I would say, the difference between mobile free to play games and single player role playing games on console is bigger than what what I believe a big category of Web three games uh, and between and, and free to play games will look like. Let's put it that way. Uh, because you're still at the heart, you're still dealing with that, with sort of a deep game economy, in both of these instances. And I do think they speak to the same player base, especially when we start looking at growing outside of outside of small sort of core player base. And also, and also because um, um, I, I promise I'll shut up in, in in a second, but but also from the perspective of of um, what people are generally what we look at the Western markets, what players are generally willing to spend on. Uh, if we look at that kind of archetypal gamer, which I believe all of us were at some point, the sweaty 14-year-old uh, playing World of Warcraft, League of Legends, CSGO, Hearthstone, etc. Um, we hate uh, pay to win. Like it runs deep, it runs deep in our hearts. We hate pay to win. And we're not, we're not afraid of being vocal about it. So we're not going to pay for something that affects gameplay. But if you look at gaming revenue-wise, where that spending is happening, it's happening in the pay, sort of pay-to-win mobile games where you're paying for progress, you're, you're, you're paying for time skips uh, because you don't have time to play, so you're, you're substituting with paying. And there's a big audience for it. So revenue-wise, it's, it's very, very, very important for gaming and also for games businesses. Uh, and um, because of that, behavior exists in Western markets within those genres. That's why I find those genres super compelling also for, for um, games that have on-chain elements, as I believe that those players can become even more vested and, 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 and spend even more time and their resources in, in, in playing these games and get even more enjoyment out of it now that we, we unlock the next level for them to be actually part of the game economies that they have been playing for years. Interesting. And you know, you shared that you were not afraid to put some uncontroversial or controversial thoughts out there. Sorry. Um, so I'll do the same. I'll, um, so we, we've had discussion. Phil, Phil probably already knows what I'm going to say, right? But I, um, I think so. what I've seen over the past year is that um, the fact that you build an open economy around games can actually has a risk of negatively impacting that core gameplay loop. That's fun. Um, and I think that in the short term is what's going to make most of the iterations around this fail. Um, I do believe that in the long term, the biggest game, so the biggest game ever, I think will happen within the next decade and it will be a massive um, MMO where, you know, oh, that's completely open and it's going to be incredibly well designed and it's going to be a designed around the fact that the economy is open. But before I think before that exists, and I also think we'll see a lot of failures among the, along the way because I think designing a game, a good game with a meta game that has an open economy uh, aspect, is way harder than 
doing the same with the closed economy. Um, and so we're, we're going to see a lot of failures. But what I'm personally then looking for is, um, you know, things like Playmint. We just discussed Playmint. It's a company. They're building a fully on-chain game. Um, it's looking amazing, by the way. Um, we'll, we'll get, you know, some of the founders on pretty soon here to, to discuss uh, more in depth what they're doing. But um, it is, I'm actually looking for games where blockchain actually impacts the core gameplay experience. Um, and... I think you know those in the short term will do better because most games that have like try to access this open economy in this meta layer will be over financialized and will um and that will impact the, the the core gameplay loop. No, it's it's been interesting over the last I mean call it twelve to fifteen months where we went through this really big but really fast cycle where blockchain gaming hype really started with play to earn. Once play to earn came up, we, we started seeing more people flock to fiat on ramps. And then we started seeing people flock to general blockchain education. Eventually, we got towards a, a, a big wave of, of gameplay first pitches. And I'm sure you guys have seen this as well. And it's been interesting how the, the industry kind of catches up to itself where like month by month, I was seeing the same trends come from a bunch of different founders where everyone was moving in the same direction. Um, and it kind of went from that 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 start where it was play to earn the financialization and earning capabilities from games to the game play, play first mentality. And I think once we hit game play first, that's when we really started to see Nico's point of we need to see the blockchain functionality enhance the core game loop because if not, like who cares, right? I think that's what a lot of traditional gamers say is it doesn't do anything. Like why does this matter? And I think that's where blockchain gaming does have an interesting opportunity to stand out, where it's not just core game loop with NFTs as cosmetics. It, there, there is are these interesting ways to reward creators, impact the core loop of the experience, and all these other things that I think will be really critical to getting buy-in from people that are currently saying, who cares, and for them to try it out because there's something truly novel and unique about the upcoming experiences that we're going to start seeing. And there, I just want to quickly repeat my previous point that that again, I I, be, I do believe this spectrum of how much on chain yeah. on chain elements you in, include in your game, and also a reason why we're invest also investors in playment, and and also we we want to hit the best teams tackling each part of this segment. I just believe these audiences are different. Uh, I believe there is an audience for all of these spectrums, mm. and those are potentially very high value audiences, uh, and uh, we want to be targeting studios building for all of these parts and kind of. Getting getting exposure to the to, to to the whole kind of plethora of different games that are going to be out there, uh, but but when I think about, you know, what could be interesting for that uh, more casual web to mobile gamer, but that still still spends a lot of money on games because revenue wise, that's a very interesting audience today in gaming, and I'm trying to figure out how to get or or what's kind of what's the way to get them into the space. In a few years' time, they might hopefully sort of drift more toward, towards those games where there is innovation on a, on a core gameplay level and, and including stuff uh, on chain. But currently, they still bring to currently they still bring some amount of complexity, and arguably these players that I'm talking about are necessarily not going to be try out those games. But um, but I think looking at this as a timeline, I think I think the next step is really unlocking that new premium in LTV. By by inducing the idea to players that they act, that they actually own the things in the game, and I think that that will unlock a premium on spending that we haven't seen 
uh, in in more mass market games previously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember one one interesting comment on that that I'm aligned with. I think I, I saw a tweet like a year ago, and it was talking about how the fact that a player shouldn't want to spend five hundred thousand plus dollars on a game is a flaw in game design. And I think that's something where spending capabilities and willingness to spend is going to increase through ownership because it's not a sunk cost once you purchase something. It is a true asset. And so while 500K, granted, is a, is a massive number, um, I think the, the sentiment behind it does make sense and aligns with Anton's comment about LTVs where true ownership does matter because it's, it's not a, a consumption cost. It's, it truly is an asset that I own. And if I move to something else, I can swap it for something that is higher value to me. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that impacts game monetization. But I do think it does tune things to enable whales to become even bigger whales when they, when they enter this world. Yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, and all of these, even speculation plays its part here in terms of, of what, what, what are the different components that affect someone's spending behavior uh, in these games? I hope it's going to be a much smaller part in the future than it is right now, but I think it will always be present in some way. But but if as long as the entertainment value trumps that sort of speculation value, uh, then then I think we're headed to the right direction. Because again, I think a funny example, if we go into confession mode here, just real quickly before Nico needs to jump, uh, but um, World of Warcraft's game I've spent by far the most money on, like by far. Been subscribed for 14 years. I bought trading card game items from 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 third party sites. I bought WoW Gold. I bought power leveling. I bought the whole thing. I've spent so much money on that game, and the the game I I've most spent second most money on by far is Crypto Raiders, because I spent like just a bunch of money off the bat on those on those characters when I started playing. Like my League of Legends skins don't come near that that level of spending. But there was the powerful primitive of like, I actually, okay, obviously it was new and cool and things, but which still that showed that, that powerful primitive owning that stuff really uh, and being able to, if I want to get rid of them, then I, I can get rid of them, mm-hmm. et cetera. But again, it's it very interesting. Like a, uh, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm going to jump. It. It, it feels like we could probably keep this discussion going for another hour. I, I would love also to have a discussion once about what's giving players resellability means for developer revenues or publisher revenues, because no one seems to talk about that. And that is something that, I don't know, we need to discuss what it means. Anyway, um, this was amazing. Yeah, so 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 we, we're going to do this. A tr- we're going to make this a trilogy. Uh, we're going to call this a new hope. The second one is <laughs> Anton Strikes Back. And then it, and then it's Return of the, fo- Re- Return of the Fog in, in, in the last episode. Love that. Love that. Good. Anton, Philip, thanks so much for joining. Uh, listener, uh, thank you for listening too, if you made it here. Really appreciate it. Uh, if you liked what you heard, feel free to let us know. You can join the Discord. You can also subscribe to the Navic newsletter. And um, if you want to have some really, really deep insights, way deeper than what we just discussed, you can also subscribe to Navic Pro uh, with the code Metacast there. All right, guys, thanks for this. Um, it was a good episode. I really enjoyed this. Um, yeah, that's it. And uh, look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.